be inspired to love life, to achieve extraordinary feats, and to change the world around you for the better. Welcome to Love Your Life, Tell Your Story by Kathleen Marriott. Grant Morn with Kathleen Marriott today, ultra marathon runner, Grant that is. Have you ever thought what it might be like to scale the heights of Mount Everest? Well, today you'll find out. Welcome, this is Grant Morn for his fourth story on Love Your Life, Tell Your Story. Grant's in Miami, Florida, USA, and we're in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. Welcome, Grant, for your fourth story. Can't wait to hear what it is today, so hello. Hi, Kathleen, and hi, everyone out there. Hope you enjoy my story tonight. And what is your story tonight, Grant? What do you have to tell us? I'm going to tell you all about a little sport I got involved in after the ultra running. It was a sport that kind of segued from ultra marathon running, and that's uh, high-altitude mountaineering. So today I'm going to tell you about summiting the big one, getting to the top of Mount Everest. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. Now, I know nothing, and I'm sure many people, we all know nothing, many of us, about mountaineering. So you'll need to tell us from scratch what is your story about mountaineering. I'm going to tell you about two months that I spent in Tibet climbing the north side of Mount Everest. You require at least two months so your body can acclimate to the lack of oxygen up high. And uh, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, obviously, and it's over 8,000 metres. Up above about 7,000 metres, it's very difficult for the human body to survive. The physiology isn't used to that lack of oxygen. So you need two months to acclimate. And while you're doing that, you're building camps up the side of the mountain that you'll bounce between on the way to the summit and you, you stock those camps with gear and they might save your life on the way up or down the mountain. So it's very important to get that work out of the way. And you also need to get fitter and fitter. I mean, you have to be very fit to go there and start, but after, as you climb the mountain, you tend to get fitter and fitter as you go up the mountain. You need everything for summit day. So everything is towards that one particular day when you're on the top of the world. Well, that's a question I have here for you, Grant. Last story, you talked about being an ultra runner and suddenly you're climbing the highest mountain in the world. How did you jump from being an ultra runner to being a mountaineer? Well, a lot of these ultra marathon races race over mountain ranges, uh, whether in the French Alps or the Italian Alps or the Colorado Rockies. I never thought I'd be able to climb mountains because I used to read a lot of books about it when I was a kid and, and they used to scare me because I'm scared of heights and it just seemed wildly dangerous, the weather and the conditions, and avalanches, etc. So I didn't think I'd ever do it. But as I got more used to being up in the mountains alone, I decided to go and get some training and learn how to use the equipment, uh, rope work, etc., weather forecasting. And then I started climbing smaller mountains and then worked up from there. So I probably climbed about 16 different size mountains before I got to Mount Everest. And I think that was very important to have that that uh, learning experience before you got on the big one. I can imagine that it would take a bit of learning. So which mountains did you climb before you got to Everest? I started on Mount Rainier, which is in Washington State in the USA. And uh, then I went down to Argentina and climbed Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Southern Hemisphere. And then I went to the biggest mountain in North America called Denali, which is in Alaska. Unfortunately, we didn't get to the summit because we had very bad weather for about three weeks on that mountain. And by the time the storm broke, we had to come down. I also climbed some other mountains on the west coast of the USA, Mount Shasta, Mount Hood, Mount Baker. And then I went to the Himalayas and climbed a, a few peaks over there, which were over 20,000 feet. So I think I had a good spread of, of uh, training and experience before I went to Mount Everest. But 
still when I got there after the entire trip, I realised how difficult it is to climb at high altitude. It's, it's extremely hard on your body and it's uh, frightening and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And when they do go wrong, they happen in the, the blink of an eye. So uh, it's something you have to really concentrate on and work hard at. And can you share with us something that has gone wrong in your career as a mountaineer? I just mentioned about Denali, uh, a peak in Alaska, the highest mountain in North America. And the first time I went there, we didn't get to the summit because of the storm. I went back there two years ago with a different team and we managed to get to the summit. When we got to the top, it was a total whiteout. The wind was blowing about 50 knots. It was minus 40 degrees. We stayed on the summit for about three minutes. And then we started coming down a very narrow uh, ridge line. It was like a, a, an icy spine. And uh, my goggles had iced up by then. I could hardly see the guy in front of me. And I was roped to a guy that was behind me, luckily because I stepped off the side of the ridge line in the whiteout and fell down the south face of Denali, which is about 5,000 feet high. I managed to stop using my ice axe, and that was only because of my training. And the guy on the other end of my rope managed to put his equipment into the ice as well and create a belay to help stop me as well. And after that, I had to climb back up to the ridge line. I thought I was a dead man. It was probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to me. And uh, lucky it all ended up well, and I can tell you about it now. But yes. at the time, I wasn't sure whether to cry or, or, or what because it scared the life out of me. And how do you recover and continue climbing after that? You know, it's like the old saying, if you fall off a horse, you should get straight back on. I've always tried to do that whenever I had a mishap in my life just to get over it because I know fear is an incredible barrier for people to get through. And uh, it's the way that you handle fear. Um determines what the outcome is sometimes. And I've been in some dangerous situations where I thought I might have lost my life on a number of occasions, uh, whether it's sea or on mountains or on motorcycles. I find after the initial adrenaline rush, the first thing I do before that adrenaline disappears is get back into it just so I can clear my mind and uh, deal with the fear. So you have the same analogy. If you fall off a mountain, you get straight back on the mountain. Yeah, well, <laughs> after the fall, I had to... The only way I could get back up to the ridge line was by myself. The other guy couldn't haul me up the rope, so it was up to me. It was either give up and fall or get back to, up there. And then once we got onto the ridge line, we still had to get off the mountain yeah. in a horrible storm. So really, I couldn't just sit down and expect the others to help me because in yeah. high-altitude mountaineering, it's very difficult to help someone that's incapacitated who can't help themselves. And a lot of the times on big mountains, it's an unwritten rule that you just leave the person there because it might kill other people trying to help them so basically it was on my own back to get down off the mountain and uh, I didn't want to let my team down or put them in any more danger so I just got to it and put the fear aside and went down. Are you from a company that wants to connect with thought leaders from across the globe featured on the Love Your Life Tell Your Story podcast? Email Kathleen at KathleenMarriott.com.au I think this has been a common thread through your three stories prior to this story that you've been able to keep that self preservation and this mindset that you can stay within yourself and and survive through very tough conditions by staying self-focused and push yourself through that you can really concentrate at the time and yet stay within yourself it's quite a skill you know it's not something that everyone can do and I'm I wasn't even sure if I could do it because I'm like the everyone else i get terrified 
In fact, sometimes lying in bed late at night, I'll think about some of the things I've done and I'll think, oh my God, I'm such an idiot for trying it. <laughs> but um, obviously it's the curiosity and, and the will to go and have a go at it that, that makes me go and do these things. But most times with fear, when I, I'm going to tell you a story uh, real briefly about how I deal with this. When I first learned to scuba dive, there was a young girl that taught me how to dive and she said a lot of people get uncomfortable um, underwater with all the equipment and claustrophobic and that. She said, whenever you start feeling fear, first thing you do is you take three really deep breaths. And that's what I've done ever since then, ever since I was a teenager when I learned to dive. And in all these situations, a lot of the time it comes down to how you breathe. And I've read a lot of different things about uh, Navy SEALs and, and, you know, soldiers and all sorts of people that go through these difficult and scary situations. And a lot of it comes down to how you breathe. You have to get the CO2 out of your system and you have to get fresh ox oxygen in. And that helps you, your mind, deal with what's going on and focus and put things aside that you know will be detrimental to the outcome and just focus on the positive stuff to get to the other side. And, and we're back to these common threads that I keep hearing on, and you'll keep sharing with us is the curiosity, the tenacity, and then you keep saying that you listen. So you've had coaches all along and you've listened to the wisdom from those wise minds that you share and you're keeping these important but somehow they're tidbits that you've kept along but they're extraordinarily important tidbits keeping the co2 out and the oxygen in they're small but very important pieces of information that have saved your life and i think that's something that you're sharing with us now these small but important pieces of information so when we go back to your climbing of everest these pieces of information must have been extraordinarily helpful to climb a mountain peak such as the the big one. Yeah, you know, and the surprising thing I found climbing Everest, once you get above 26,000 feet, it's called the death zone. That means there's not enough oxygen to support your physiology and your body's actually dying. It's consuming itself. Um, and I noticed a lot of people up there, you become very primal. It's all about yourself because you're the only one up there that can look after yourself. And a lot of people that die up there is because they get into a situation where they can't help themselves and the other climbers can't endanger themselves to help you as well. So it's like dog eat dog. And the way I've seen people act above 26,000 feet up to the summit and back is very, very primal. And I thought that was an interesting psychology, you know, but I understood it. And I understood the fact that some people have to be left up there because they can't be helped down because they can't help themselves. So when you're up there in that situation, you really have to think that you're the only one that can get you there and you're the only one particularly that can get you back. And you have to decide yourself when you are going to turn around if you don't think you can make it. Because if you keep going, then uh, the chances are that uh, you won't have enough resources left mentally or physically to get back down off the mountain again. And we had two guys in our team that didn't make the summit. And we applauded those guys when we got back down to base camp for making that very important decision on their own to turn around in, rather than endangering other people to try and help them down if they got into trouble. You can't, it's a difficult thing to explain until you get up into that environment and you see that people just become primal animals. And um, I'd love to see some psychiatric reports about you know, what the brain goes through up there to get you through that sort of stuff. But you really have to 
focus 100%. This is a good decision for themselves and, and for others. So it's not, a, not necessarily a selfish decision. It's a decision that's made in the greater good. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that climb big mountains that have what's called summit fever and they want to get, get to the top regardless of what the outcome is. And uh, in that scheme of things, they endanger others on the way as well. So congratulations. Did you make it to the summit, Grant? Yes, I did. We left the top camp at 26,000 feet at about 11 p.m. We climbed all night up the northeast ridge and got to the summit at about 15 minutes past eight in the morning and we stayed for 14 minutes, 14 long minutes before turning around and coming back down. And I'll tell you what, when I was at the top, it wasn't Yahoo, I'm on the top of the world and I managed to climb Everest. I was just terrified about making it back down. And I, I remember I kept looking back down the northeast ridge where we climbed overnight and I was worried about not having the resources to get back down and the hundred other mishaps that could occur because descending a mountain is, is uh, usually the most dangerous part of the whole climb. Uh, most of the accidents happen on the way down. So I really, after that 14 minutes, just wanted to get going to see if I could get off the mountain. And so, uh, it was a very, very difficult time. So you're not describing a mindfulness 14 minutes of taking in a view and standing there and savouring the moment? No, it was just like, okay, I'm here, I want to go now. <laughs> moment achieved <laughs> it still ranks as probably one of the most dangerous things i've ever done there's some sections on the mountain that terrified me and i know at the time that my brain wasn't operating properly because of the lack of oxygen yeah. and i've done some silly things and it's funny i kind of knew i was doing silly things at the time or unsafe things but i i'd lost all my sense of uh safety and and, and i just wanted to get down and uh, really, there was plenty of possibilities for me falling or getting caught in tricky situations. But uh, luckily, and that's all it was, a bit of luck, I managed to get back to high camping and off the mountain. So are you explaining a observer, observer part of the brain and a, then a conscious part of that observer? Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And I've, I've experienced it a number of times when I know that my mind isn't functioning properly, but I know it inherently that my mind isn't functioning properly. And this happens sometimes when you have hallucinations from sleep deprivations when you're running some of these ultra marathons. You can look at something in the bush and see an image or uh, a picture and inherently, you know, in your brain that it's not real, but you're seeing it anyway. So it's this total disconnect between opposite sides of your brain. I'm not sure what the explanation is, but it's very, very interesting when you're standing there going, I know I'm seeing an apparition and I know it's fake, but I know my mind's doing it. The other side of my mind knows that it's doing it. So there's awareness, there's a visual hallucination, but you're still having the hallucination. Yeah, wonderful parts of the brain operating in different sections and you're compartmentalising. Want to keep the conversation going and connect with like-minded, positive people? Changing our world for the better? Be inspired by fellow changemakers and join our closed Facebook community to keep the conversation going. Search Love Your Life. Tell your story now. This experience, you obviously came down, and then afterwards, how did your body cope? This is an interesting question too because um, after I got back down to base camp and it was a long trip back to Florida through Kathmandu, and in the months that followed, I found that I had a lot of mood swings. I was moody. I couldn't sleep properly. I'd have nightmares. I re also realised when I was away for that couple of months, my fingernails and toenails had hardly grown. 
and my hair, hair had hardly grown. And I put that down to lack of nutrients and minerals and that. But uh, I remember afterwards, someone said to me that uh, I exhibited some signs of uh, PTSD, slight signs of PTSD, probably from fear and um, overwork and exhaustion. And, and so like much that. cortisol and adrenaline coming through your body. Yeah. But it, it took me two or three months before I felt normal again. And uh, I'm not embarrassed to say that. Um, that's just my mm. physiology and my brain dealing with the experiences I had up there. All those corticotropins. So here we have you recovering. So the question I'd like to ask you now is, would you do it again? You know, I'd go and climb some big mountains again. I don't think I'd go to Everest again because, you know, I've already done it. I'm not, if I'm going to put in all that effort, I might as well go and climb a bigger mountain. The year after, I got offered to go on a team to K2 in Pakistan, which is K2 is the second highest mountain in the world. Um, I gave them an absolute no on that because that mountain terrorised me. That's a totally different mountain from Mount Everest. It's a, it's a scary piece of granite. Uh, but I have other ambitions to go and climb some more peaks for sure. Some of the skills I learned on Everest, you know, I garnered all those skills from all the mountains leading up to that and I got to uh, put them all together on the climb on Everest. And uh, then I climbed Denali afterwards as well. Um, I'd hate to see all that skill and experience just dissipate yes. before the end of my day. So I'd definitely like to go back and do some other mountains. Well, Grant, it's extraordinarily impressive. And we thank you so much for sharing your story, not just this story, but the other three stories. And it's so inspiring. And I can promise you from this listener, I will never climb Everest. <laughs> But I am impressed and in awe that you did. So thank you very much. It's obvious you love your life and I'm so glad you shared your story with us. So congratulations on your achievements and keep going, keep loving your life and keep doing the amazing things that you do. It's wonderful to have you in the world. You know, great talking to you and I like to tell people, you know, I like to keep my life full and these are things that I, that I do that I imagine in my mind and wonder if I can do them. And that gives me the, the motivation to get out there and have a go and to see if I can do them. And uh, that's how I lead my life and love my life. Well, curiosity, tenacity, persistence are your key things that I've picked up here. And also the other thing today is that you take wisdom from others. So wisdom we will take from you, Grant. This is only part of our story. To hear the rest, leap forward to the next podcast and give us five stars wherever you listen. Love Your Life, Tell Your Story by Kathleen Marriott.